This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the fourth installment of UC Santa Barbara's Spring 2018 Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have Lars Nielsen with us tonight. Lars has over 25 years of experience as a global leader in high-tech enterprise software sales. At Cloudera, Lars and his team created the account-based sales development sales methodology, which has now been propagated all over Silicon Valley and beyond, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that program is all about. Prior to joining Cloudera, Lars founded SalesSource, uh, sales which was a, a consulting firm specializing in CRM optimization as well as sales, development, uh, sales process development. He's also served as, a, this is the most impressive part, I think. He's also served as a senior sales executive at three other companies that have gone public in addition to Cloudera. So he's been at four companies that have gone public. And we're going to explore a little bit about how how he has such a good nose for businesses. How is he finding these teams and these ideas and these opportunities that, that are going public? Uh, the other companies included ArcSight, uh, Riverbed Technology, and Portal Software. He's also a special advisor to True Ventures. If you guys know anything about venture capital, True is a top-shelf uh, top venture firm, Silicon Valley. There he's able to do what he loves doing um, the most, really passionate about working with young sales teams and helping those sales teams develop and mature, and he's helping, helping those individuals mature as sales executives. He began his career at Xerox Corporation. Xerox Corporation made copiers. Ever heard of a copier? That's this old, big thing that we're going to talk about. How he went from hardware... Then he went to boxed software or premise-based software, and then he went to software as a service. So interesting career, uh, similar path to, um, to yours truly. And most importantly, he earned his undergraduate degree from UC Santa Barbara. Let's give Lars a warm Gaucho welcome. So it's funny, obviously I don't exclusively have gauchos, but um, we, do, we do have some gauchos. And it's funny, the era. So I had the era, the older even older than me, if you can believe it. And they remember this building as the bank that was burned down in the riots. And then people of your era remember it as the raging club that it was for probably a decade or so. Yeah, we called it Countdown. Uh, it was called The Graduate. And uh, every Friday and Saturday at 7 o'clock, if you came here, you would get drinks at five for one. And then at eight o'clock, it went to four to one. And then at nine o'clock, three to one. Three to one, three drinks for the price of one. 10 o'clock, two to one, and 11 o'clock. You passed and then at, Yeah, and then at 12 o'clock, blotto. Um, and I almost, I did almost get arrested uh, outside at Dog Park uh, uh, one of those evenings. But to come back to the graduate, to see this, it's, uh, it's mind-boggling. It's been, it was 30 years ago I was here, but this is a, a true pleasure. Uh, the fact that there's this many students <laughs> after hours right. on a Tuesday right. in class. This is an evening that, that all of was, you watching online. Yeah, I was surfing uh, around this time <laughs> when I was uh, back, uh, back, at, back at UCSB. Things have changed. So UC Santa Barbara, I mean, it was always a fun school, um, but it really has become more focused on academics. Super hard to get into. I wouldn't be able to get into the school now. And the folks that are here in this audience um, are pretty serious about their future. Yeah, so. no, you and me both. My, uh, my son is a freshman at SDSU. Uh, he applied here. Uh, no way. 
Um, in fact, um, <laughs> in fact, there are students today getting into Berkeley and UCLA and not getting in here. So, whatever you guys have done, um, it's the you guys have raised the yes, it's the professors yeah. category. I've heard, I've heard. Well, let's talk about what your career path. So, you graduated from UCSB. Xerox was your first job out of school. Correct. Yeah, on-campus interviews at the Career Center here. Okay. So selling hardware. So I have some friends that, that had this very similar path. They worked for Xerox. Literally, here's how it would go down. They would give you a pager. They would tell you your territory. And they would give you a card, a gas card. That's right. you could drive around. And then they said, knock yourself out. So you're knocking on doors, literally. You're a, basically a door-to-door salesperson. How do, what, you've got to have some good opening lines. Like when you finally found a person that could write a check or make a decision, how did you, how did you take advantage of that opportunity? Um, well, I want to just take one step back because the knocking on the doors, going up and down PCH in Southern California, that was our outbound, right? Cold, cold calling, um, walking your territory. But we also had inbound, uh, and inbound is very relevant today. But inbound back then was... Uh, someone had written out in a uh, uh, Wall Street Journal or um, Time Magazine and ripped out and wrote their name and number and address and put it in a snail mail and shipped it to Stanford, so Connecticut. You had a lead form in a lead print. Lead form in oh, print. Wow. And once a month, Stanford, Connecticut would send those lead cards to the different districts around the country. I worked out of the Long Beach district. And what would happen is I would get a page from my manager. And I knew what his number was. And so I'd have to find a Denny's where they had a, a payphone. And back then... So wait, we, you're uh, confusing the hell out of everybody. Hold on. A pager. Go watch an old rap video. It's a little thing like this. Anyway, I would call in, find a Denny's payphone, put in two dimes, call my <laughs> manager. He would give me the name and the address of an office manager who had written, I think I want a copier. And then I would go, wow. um, and that was an inbound lead. So anyway, and you either know. they were there, they were they just gone to lunch, and you have to wait around. Well, I mean, the best thing was we did five after five, and that's five cold calls after five o'clock because the office managers mm. were not there, and hopefully you'd get a decision maker that was in the office after five o'clock and um, ask them a question of whether or not any staples had gotten into the the works of the copier, and it stopped. Because if your copier stopped working right. back then, right. forget about it. Yeah, uh, everything was paper. There was paper. no fax machine. No so, digital. Yeah, no. Nope, it was all paper. Yeah. So you'd, op- you'd, you'd ask that sort of open-ended leading question, and then from there you're hoping that you could say, yeah. oh. Well. How many times a week does your copier go down? And again, that was just to find out how much pain, right. how much pain they had had. And if it was more than one, then you knew that uh, you, know, you could come in with, you know, right. we at Xerox love you. That was the, I know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's a little bit of mantra there. And But you still remember it. So what are some of the other lessons that you took from that? I mean, that's a tough way to make a buck, but it's a great way to learn sales. Yeah, I mean, back then, Xerox was one of 25 uh, <laughs> hardware companies. The other 24 were... Japanese camera manufacturers right, right. that had come out with xerography. So there was nothing that differentiated one box from the other. What differentiated uh, the product back then was the service, mm-hmm. how quickly someone could come out and fix it. That was differentiating. And then the paper. We actually had some of the best paper that had less dust. And so our sales pitches were less about the technology and the speeds and feeds, but more about 
if your copier goes down, which is bad, we're going to be there quicker, mm -hmm. and we're going to fix it faster and get you back up and running. And that was our way of differentiating. And you guys weren't cheap, the cheapest either. You had the brand, right? And so some of the Japanese manufacturers came in with smaller units, maybe not the brand name. And they were, they were the, the entrance at that point. Yeah, but there's another lesson here for, for those of you that are looking for job, jobs after school. So there were 24 other copier companies, but Xerox... Uh, was the de facto kind of standard. Um, and there's something to be said for, uh, and there's a saying back in our day, no one ever got fired right. for buying IBM. Right, right. Um, and so if you were looking at a copier purchase and the Konica or the Mita or the Savin rep came in before I did and got a meeting, the decision maker would call Xerox just because they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So we got, we got calls... Um, and I would definitely position yourself if you're going into an industry and you're looking at and you're stack ranking uh, different players that are competing, try to find the one that is also um, kind of uh, the 800-pound gorilla. When people think of, um, you know, big data computing, right, there's three people. There's Cloudera, there's Mapbar, and there's Hortonworks. Um, and again... The company I used to work for, uh, Cloudera, was a company that innovated and came out with it. So we're going to get a call from a decision maker if they're looking at the competition just because they want to have us involved. So I guess the, the, the point there is don't go for the competition. Go for the company um, that is also relatable to the, right. to the vertical because you're going to get you're going to get leads and you're going to get people that listen to you because you are the de facto standard. And it's way harder to sell um, in a company that doesn't have that. And you probably get some decent sales training, which we'll talk about in a minute, as opposed to a startup where it's sort of catch as catch can, which yeah. we'll also talk about in a minute. So in the mid-90s, you, you had sold a bunch of copiers and you sort of heard that siren call of Silicon Valley. You, you go up to Silicon Valley and you ended up at um, Portal Software. So at that time, all software was what was called box software or premise-based software. So you would ship the software on a disk or a series of disks, and they would load it at their, at their company. And then you would, you would basically have a one-time sale, and there would be some recurring, like 18% maintenance fees yep. or something or other. Exactly right. So you had a good ride there. So you, um, about 40 people when you got there, about a million dollars in revenue, wrote it up to 2,000 people, 500, or 300 million in revenue in five years. But you said to me, as we were sort of tr trading notes back and forth, you said, John, I learned more in the year I had to lay off from 42 down to two people. Um, you learned more in that year than you learned all the way up. Yeah, so um, there's a saying, uh, a rising tide floats uh, many boats. And I was at a company that um, was on the rocket ship ride of uh, the first dot-com mm -hmm. kind of bubble. Um, and we literally could do no wrong. Um, yeah, we lost uh, uh, deals, but we won way more than we lost. Um, we were at the right place at the right time with the right technology. And we all made mistakes, but they were masked by the fact that we were doing all these, all right. these deals. Right. Um, then Sales solves all problems. Then the bubble burst. Uh, and for those of you uh, that have uh, studied this, the, dot -com, the first dot-com boom was in the late 90s. It was directly following the IPO of Netscape. It's now history. I know. <laughs> um, and I rode that first wave. Well, um, that whole thing blew up. And our revenues 
at the time we were a public company and our stock was over a hundred dollars a share mm. um, within a year it went to 25 cents and um, every Buddy in the company had to go through a, what's called a reduction in force. And when you have 40 to 50 people on your sales team, and it comes down from human resources that you have to take 25 of those 50 out, you have to decide on who that's going to be. And right. these are people that it's are brutal. getting benefits, and they, they, I mean, their livelihood. And so um, I found that. Um, uh, management and leadership in times of crises where uh, uh, I, I became a much more human and mm -hmm. empathetic leader. Yep. Um, and then after the first 25, three months later, I mean, this dot bomb kept on going. I had to go from 25 to 12, from 12 to 6, from 6 to 3, and I eventually ended up with just me and someone else. And it was brutal. And again, you still had to optimize. You still had to sell. And it was, it was just brutal. And then you know, and then it, it, and then we ended up getting bought by Oracle, and it went away. There's, but there's no substitute. Nobody in this room. Um, I'm kind of looking around. Very few people in this room. Some of the people watching, for sure, know what a downturn is. And until you've been through it, it's hard. I mean, you know, the, I could listen to your words and go, "Ah, oh, that sounds like that sucked." But it was a multi-year situation. Like, and it was it reverberated throughout the economy, especially in Silicon Valley. I mean, cab drivers were like had no yeah. money. Like nobody had money because everything just kind of stopped for about eighteen months. No, there was a, you couldn't get a U-Haul in San Francisco because everyone had taken them and gone elsewhere. So there was a. I mean, everyone was leaving. Right. Um, and today, I think the equivalent is, I mean, there's a thousand companies that get funded every day, if not every week. Um, I think today's, um, and, and again, after the first year, 900 of those, they've just ran out of money. Right. They never got to revenue. They never got to any kind of scale. They didn't build a, a go-to-market, get-to-revenue engine. Um, they may have had product market fit, but again, a lot of founders of technology companies still today, they are engineers, they are designers, they are product people. Very few of them have ever built a business. Uh, very few of them have built a, a revenue machine um, where you're managing inbound leads and making outbound cold calls and getting appointments uh, with interested parties that you could then uh, you know, launch a sales cycle into. Um, and that's where I spend a lot of my time at True, right. helping young founders who have built this incredible, you know, whatever it is, a system, a solution, a product, uh, but they haven't thought about how are we going to give you this beautiful thing and for it take cold, hard cash? That is an art. And I said it kind of flippantly and quickly, but sales does solve all problems. So you can have a great technology. It might be a little early um, or it might be, it might be not, you know, even a little late and you need to rev your, your product, but you're not going to have a chance to do that if you're not generating some sales. So you yeah. have to get pilots, some kind of NRE money. You have to get some money into the company somehow, some way. Yeah, and again, closed revenue comes from uh, opportunities that your sales people are working, and uh, it becomes what's known as your pipeline. Um, and there are a lot of companies, depending on um, what industry, uh, what product you're selling, um, in order to forecast uh, your revenues, um, most companies need a multiplier of number of deals in the pipeline Absolutely. that will end up closing so you can 
um, more predictably yep. uh, forecast your outcome. Um, as newly funded ventures take on more venture funding, um, right? every quarter you've got to get in front of your investors and your board and show them where you are in the revenue roadmap. Um, and if you haven't gotten to revenue yet, how many opportunities uh, are you working? In order to get to an opportunity, you have to have leads to work. Um, and so there's a, there's a whole uh, journey that has to happen and an engine that has to be built and conversion metrics that have to be sussed out so that you can create a predictable model uh, so that as you inch your way towards uh, another you know, series uh, or you're going towards an IPO, um, you have to have a predictable right. revenue model. Yeah, I mean, it's basically how you're building out your business. If you, if you can't predict the revenue side of it, then all of your expenses are, are potentially going to get over your skis and have, have issues. Or you might grow too slowly. You might, if you underestimate and don't realize, wow, I really could have levered up and hired more salespeople if I had just known. I'm going to go to the first student's question in a minute. I've got one more. Um, so then you go to River. So you have that you know, kind of crazy five years where it looks like everybody's a gazillionaire and then it looks like everybody's broke. And you go to, ended up at Riverbed. And what I liked about um, Riverbed Technologies, what I liked about the way you got there was you networked within the VC community. So you identified the company first, which is what I tell all my students, find a company you really want to work for. Don't just shoot your resume out. Find a company you want to work for, know why you want to work there, and then network your way into it, which is what you did. Yeah, I did, but I had two failures in between Portal Software and then finding Riverbed. And those failures were me following people that I had done extremely well with that were above me at Portal mm. who said, shit, Lars, you were the one that helped build the revenue engine. Come with me. Right. And I didn't know much about the Valley. I didn't know how money flowed. So I went to two companies that you know, they flamed out, and that happens every day. Um, so I went back to one of my mentors who I knew had connections within the venture capital community and I said, I, I, I don't want to, I can't make another mistake in my uh, career by having a third flame out. And so um, uh, he set me up with Excel Partners, and I started uh, right. uh, networking. And I found out that there was this one company that um, the VC community had all seen, um, and it was called Riverbed Technology. And it was the whitest, hottest company then, and it was WAN Optimization Technology. Not that I knew anything about it. But I wanted in. And so I networked my way and got an introduction from the Axel Partners mm -hmm. um, uh, venture partner um, that had funded um, Riverbed and got the yep. introduction. And that's how I which got the job. Great, which yeah. is a great introduction. Usually people listen to the person with the, with the cash uh, in their pocket. Let's go back, though, to the two that didn't work out. So Pronto Networks and Wrapped didn't pan out. Um, you followed some people that you trusted. You, I mean, you obviously had a really good track record after that. So... What was it? Uh, was it you just didn't vet it because you, you just believed in the people, yet there wasn't product market fit? Is that what, when you look back on it now, like what would you have done differently? Yeah, I, uh, so they, both companies had product market fit, but they were in an industry. And again, things change in the valley. Things change in technology overnight. Yeah. I mean, tomorrow, a new algorithm can come out that does away with an entire group of companies. Right. Um, or there could be an acquisition of one company into a larger one that takes out an entire space because now, um, you know, IBM is right. Um, and so what I learned was um, executive team is the number one most important 
Um, and again, I followed one executive uh, who I trusted, who I'd you know, been successful with, but he joined a company where the other executives were newer. They had not done it before. Mm. And so one out of five, one out of eight executives does not a right. you know, enterprise class mature executive team make. Yep. Um, and I found out that uh, you know, the path to profitability and the path to growth, uh, there's so many ups and downs and sideways motions, but if the executive team who are making the decisions know each other, trust each other, even love each other sometimes, yep. Yep. Um, and there's not infighting and politics and finger pointing, which can happen in, in, in kind of bad times. It's like, it wasn't my fault. I mean, uh, my sales guys are trying to sell it, but your product sucks, man, right. Mr. Engineering VP. Right. Why don't right. you make it right. better and it's not it has so many bugs? I mean, If marketing could just give me a lead. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of that that happens when you miss a number. Right. Um, and uh, so a mature executive team has been through this before. They understand alignment. They understand communication, um, which are probably two of the most important yep. Uh, principles when scaling and growing a company. So you followed a, a strategy that I often recommend to my students, which is look for a serially successful team that's decided to work together again. So chemistry risk is pretty low, but in addition, you're going to learn a lot more. So like if you worked with me in one of my first startups, I didn't know what I was doing. Like I was all over the map and we kind of figured it out, but it took a while and we made a lot of mistakes. That's not a great way to learn. Like, you'd rather learn from somebody that's done it two or three times, and then they're not making the silly mistakes. Yeah, there's uh, no doubt. Again, I got into sales because I was money motivated, um, and I've been now selling for 30 years. But today, when I look at the, sa- the sales teams that I'm building, which are typically students like yourself coming out of college and coming onto one of my teams, um, yes, everyone has to kind of uh, pay the rent and, and have money left over, some food and a little bit of fun, but I found... Today, uh, uh, workers put more importance on culture, um, filling their tool bag with relevant experience, having a really great manager that can develop them, and having a leadership team that knows what they're doing. Um, The number of SDRs, which are teams that I build, sales development reps, that that left Cloudera to go chase a bigger title or a bigger paycheck at another company only to find out that there's no enablement, there's no onboarding, there's mm-hmm. no training, completely new product, technology, and they're sitting there going, I don't know what to do, and there's not enough oversight, and there's not enough, and again, you can self-start your way and figure some things out, but you also want a place to go into with people that you trust, and that will put your arm around you and say, hey, it's okay, I'll you know, you had a bad day. You had a bunch of no's after making 100 cold calls. Right. Um, jump on the rookie court with me tomorrow, and I'll show you what I do. Um, that is a culture that uh, I've realized a lot of people want to get into because it's hard. Right. Um, right. The game of life, man, it's hard. And they're young people who are, that's the time to learn, yeah. not necessarily time to earn. I'll take those first students' questions. As a special advisor at True Ventures, you have the opportunity to meet and help many startups with their sales teams and technologies. What have been some of the most common problems you have seen and how are they resolved? Uh, hopefully every, everyone heard that. Some of the more common problems that I've seen with True Ventures and young founders who just get their million, their first $2 million. Um, and these are seed stage investments, so they haven't built out a revenue engine. And what they're looking for is that go-to-market planning, that get-to-revenue roadmap. 
Um, and a lot of them, they're, they're afraid of the word sales because they're not sellers, right? right? They have been hands-on keyboard or they're designers and they've been in the back room with a bunch of, you know, very talented, smart people, but they just, you know, cold calling has never been their bag. Um, and so they, they say, well, I need to hire a VP of sales. Well, a VP of sales, um, the kind that we know, would never go to an early-stage startup with no salespeople. Right. A VP of sales needs an army with managers and directors to go in because they don't know how to roll up their sleeves mm-hmm. and create process and, and procedure and select technology to help uh, create efficiencies in, 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 in the flywheel. And so... Um, I will redirect the, the conversation and first of all say a VP of sales is not going to cure your problems. What we need to do here is let's start hiring um, you know, some people that have been successful in their sales careers. Let's get them on the phone. Let's get them managing inbound leads and let's get, uh, let's get meetings set up and let's talk to potential prospects and understand um, kind of uh, uh, your, your, your value proposition. Um, you built this because you think it's solving this pain. Let's have some conversations and let's uh, create, um, you know, kind of a, a roadmap to how we can uh, get in front of more of those types of people at those types of companies. So people talk about the, the personas. Mm-hmm. Um, at this company I just spent four and a half years with, it's a big data company. Um, there's maybe 5,000 companies in the world that have big data problems. And it turns out that they are the biggest companies in the world. A lot of employees, a lot of databases. So our target addressable market becomes these 5,000 companies. Now, inside these 5,000 companies, there are thousands of employees. But there's maybe two or three handfuls of people that are relevant that would know, and we call these people personas. And if you have big data in your title, if you have data architecture in your title, director of data architecture, the odds are that you know the problem that my solution will solve. The odds are that you might even know the name of my company. So when I call you or I send you an email um, with some content and some messaging that uh, helps educate and inspire you to what our solution does, then the, the, the open rates of those emails um, or the uh, callbacks of those voice messages left or the reply rates to those emails that I sent goes up. And that's what starting a sales cycle is all about. There's something that I say a lot because I truly believe uh, in this and that the hardest part of closing a deal is finding it. If you have nothing to sell, work on, right? right? And again, negotiating and handling objections and closing and presenting and demoing, these are all activities. And sales is a lot about activities. But until you have someone that says, yeah, I'll check that out, right. you, have, you don't have anything. Right. And again, I've been building these sales development teams. They don't carry quota to sell anything. They carry quota to uh, generate appointments by cold calling and cold emailing and following up on inbound you know, marketing event yep, leads. Yep. Qualified appointments. Qualified appointments, you got well, it. Which is ironic because SDRs typically, and I know there's some folks in here that have that job already. I've placed a bunch of students over the years. They're the, typically the youngest people at the company, some yeah. of the youngest people, yet they have such an important job. I mean, if they're not doing their job, the leads, the quality of leads is going to suffer, the, the pipeline's going to shrink. 
So you have a lot of responsibility coming right out of school. It's the most important uh, job in a company. So I came in last night, and I spent today at a local Santa Barbara. It's actually Carpinteria venture-backed technology company called Procore. Um, and this is a company that you'll hear more and more about because they are on a trajectory that very few companies have ever had. And the model that the VP of sales came in with, uh, because we worked together at Cloudera, was taking this SDR model, but instead of having one SDR for every five reps, he had one SDR for every rep. And in fact, he even turned it opposite and has 1.5 SDR. So in other words, the sales reps that carry quota that have to demo, negotiate, and close their deals, they're not spending that much time cold calling and cold emailing. That's a very, it's a very manual um, and kind of intrusive and hard job. Yep. You want your sellers that you pay a lot of money to to be selling. demoing, negotiating, selling, and closing. Yeah. Um, and so if you look at most of the most successful companies in the technology companies in the Valley that have grown as quickly as they have, they've done it on the backs of a sales development rep. And it's one of the best career paths that I think any young person coming out of college can have because within a year or 18 months, if you do well, you're going to position yourself either for a quota-carrying inside sales role or account executive role, or you might decide, you know, uh, marketing is your jam, or you might decide operations or enablement. Um, But the, I mean, again, it doesn't have to be a small venture-backed company. You can go to a Salesforce.com, an Oracle, there are lots of unbelievably uh, great companies that have great management, great leadership, great products. Um, I don't know that I would throw my hat into the ring for a seed stage uh, venture back company that doesn't have salespeople. I would go to where they have good management, good leadership, a product that's at least version 3 or 4.0, right. where bugs have been figured out, and, yeah, yeah. and there's a path to either the next round of financing or IPO or profitability. Right. Did you, I know you and you and I have sort of traded emails on this idea of entrepreneurial salespeople. Uh, Jason Lemkin and I have talked about it, written about it. I've had to do it, right? Where, as you were saying, Rev 1.0, where nobody in their right mind would join the company, and so we had to find really entrepreneurial salespeople. How, what, what characteristics stand out to you when you're sitting across from somebody and you know that this situation is really going to require an entrepreneurial person? What are you looking for? What are you hoping they're going to say? What are you, what are you looking for in their past to give you some kind of a hint? It's sort of the person that could write the playbook versus the person that could run the playbook. Yeah, so I, uh, I said this earlier in the meetup that I had today. So there's this uh, saying that I grew up with, which is you can't teach height. Mm. You're, you either are or you're not. There's a thing that I use when I uh, vet inbound um, you know, people that want to work for me. Um, one of the things that I've realized I can't teach is getting up in the morning and getting after it. Right. And I call this fire in the belly. So if there's one thing that you take away from today, just know that when you graduate from here and you get into the game of life, most people are looking for people that have this fire in the belly. Uh, it's hard to just have it. My guess is most of you here after hours on a Tuesday have it, and you're listening to me, and I don't see too many people sleeping at least right now, and I love that. <laughs> but if you have this fire in the belly, 
and you continue that and you get up early and you work hard and you work long and you work smart, there's a place for you uh, at any company. Um, um, a self-starter is, uh, man, for me to have to manage a right. poor performer no out, uh, I mean, I would, it might take me three to six months to understand that I have a poor performer if I have a large team. Then I've got to decide how to get rid of or cycle that person out, and that often takes a performance improvement plan. Yep. That might take another three to six months. Um, and depending on my human resources, recruiting, hiring, um, I might not be able to recycle that requisition and begin the recruiting process to find someone to replace that person. I've made a year to 18-month mistake. <coughs> a lot of young companies, you can't sustain an 18-month mistake on a, on a hire. So again, I spend a lot of time uh, vetting that person coming in, and I do that and my entire management team interviews every candidate. It's not just me. I want everyone to do this, not just you know four out of five. I want all five people to go, yes. And we're not looking for a track record of success. We know you don't have that yet. Um, we're looking for fire in the belly. I can develop that, um, and that's what I want. I want a great attitude. So what do you look for, though, to see that? Because I can sit there across from you and say, I've got fire in my belly. But then what are you really looking for in their past? I, I ask them questions about uh, their upbringing, mommy and daddy, and I ask them questions about their peer group. I believe that fire in the belly comes from 50% your upbringing, where you honored, cherished, respected, loved by the people that brought you up. Uh, that's a really good indicator that you, you get it. The other half is the friends you chose in high school and college. And again, we all have those friends that we look up to. And I think we all have those friends that when we go home for the summer, um, you know, they're the ones that maybe aren't doing much and they're probably finding trouble. Uh, those are not the people that um, I followed. Yep. Um, so I think upbringing and peer group has a lot to say uh, for whom you are. And that's what I'm looking for. So I, my number one question will be, um, you know, what does... Jane do when she's not at school or not working. Right. Um, and the other thing I look for is I look, if I see a hole in their summer, again, you guys are all adults. Everyone's either 18 or, or older. You are adults. I want to know that you went home uh, during your summers and didn't do nothing. Um, even if that's being uh, a camp counselor, I think that's great. Giving back, uh, mentoring young kids. Yep. I've even have, I've had people put on their resumes that they, you know, they went home to take care of their aging grandmother because their parents were working. That's okay, too. That's giving back. Sure. But if you have nothing that you are proud of that you did during one of the summers while you're an adult, you might not make it in front of me. And so whatever you can do to set yourself apart from everyone else in this room and the millions of people that are graduating this quarter and next quarter, just do it. And that means you have to not be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It turns out that this networking, mm -hmm. building uh, 
a, a community and a network of people that know who you are and know what you're capable of that you can uh, turn to yep. and say, hey, um, and whether that's immediate family, um, well, they'll always be there for you, but the more internships and the more things you do outside of your hobbies and your friends that you're connecting to people uh, that you know, have business acumen or have experience, do it. And then ask them to give you a leg up. It's way too hard to do it on your own. And the reality is somebody helped them. You know, somebody helped them back in the day, and most people are, are ready. Yeah, to I'm, I'm in that phase of my life where I'm paying it forward. Yeah. I mean, I've been, and I was never afraid. Um, and I asked more people for help, and I got a lot of no's. And that's okay, too. That's the game of life, too. Don't get disappointed. Right. Don't get upset. If you get a no, that just means there may be a yes the next time you ask. Yep. It's not a no. It's, it's not now. Right? Yeah. Now, I love that you bring up the, the idea of peer groups. So my other class, some of, some of the students take that other class as well. One of the assignments they're doing this week is I want you to write about the five people you spend the most time with. Um, and that's based on intensity, frequency, you know, th- that sort of thing. And, but I, then I want you to write about the five people you would like to spend the most time with. So they can just, they don't have to be actual people, but like what would those people be doing? Because right now, folks in this room, they have a chance to remake themselves. Yeah. So if they graduate from here, they can be a different person and they can start surrounding themselves with different people that can help them, um, you know, get to that next level of adulthood as opposed to the, the maybe what they've been doing here at UCSB, which isn't all bad, but you... You know, it's sort of that growing up process. Yeah, well, that's the... Just be um, mindful about it. N- no doubt. And again, there's, there's two types of mentors that I would urge you all to look for as you go through life. Uh, the first, and I think the most important, is what I'll call the life mentor. And that's a person that you're going to be able to go to over the next 20, 30 years in your career um, that sees you going in and out of different opportunities, maybe different companies, different careers, that you can ask, right? They... Um, what do you think about this? And they're there with you, and they get to know you along the journey. And then the other one, also just as important, is when you get into that first company, that second company, take your time, take you know six to nine months, and decide whom at that company is going that, that could become your mentor. Because it turns out that every company has changes that are going on. They have politics. They have things that are going right, things that are going wrong. Um, and if you're connected with someone who has been there and maybe has a title that's above yours that cares about you, they're going to watch out over you and they're going to help you and guide you um, to make the right moves. If you don't have that, you might be sitting there going, man, I've been passed up for promotions three times, and you know what? I'm better than that girl. I'm better than that guy. And if you don't have anyone to kind of talk to you about it, you're just going to sit there and get disgruntled, get pissed, and then you're going to leave. Yeah. Um, and again, um, so again, mentorship, um, I think that's great. If I were you, I would pick five people that, um, that might, at least one of those might be one of your life mentors. Because again, um, even if it's just a 30-minute coffee once a month or a 30-minute call you know, once a quarter, um, you're going to build a relationship with that person in your company and in your life. And they're going to they're care about you. Um, and so anyway, I think, uh, you know, that openness, that kind of vulnerability, and I know that's hard for a lot of guys yeah. especially, yeah. Um, it plays well. Um, and um, asking for help is, is something, you know, you don't have to be the hero who can do everything by yourself. 
man, get a leg up. It, 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 it's easier. And I, I can tell you that trying to do it on your own when you get out of school and get that first job, yep. you can apply to 100 companies, not even, your resume won't even make it on no. the stack. No. So. Into the digital trash cans. I've been yeah. remiss, and I'm going to take a couple student questions in a row. When developing software for business to manage their data and al analytics, what new data is collected for the account-based sales development that wasn't collected before? Okay, so he's referring to account-based sales development, which was a best practice that we kind of innovated on at Cloudera. And um, uh, just for a frame of reference, um, Cloudera had decided that there were 5,000 accounts in the world that we believe that we should be selling to. It's a pretty finite group of accounts. Today we have a, uh, a thousand accounts, so four thousand. And we, it took us ten years to get to a thousand accounts. We have another four thousand to go until we uh, decide to increase that. Um, and so, um, the data available for my team today to go after these five thousand accounts is truly remarkable. I can have an SDR within a matter of seconds run a query against LinkedIn Sales Navigator. For those of you that know what LinkedIn, it's a database of just about mo every professional in the world has a profile on LinkedIn where they have their company and their title and where they worked before, where they went to school. Um, they can literally run a query that says, in the Pacific Northwest, where my territory is, I want to download um, those people that have big data architecture um, and uh, governance, risk, and compliance in their title who work for healthcare companies that are a billion dollars or more and have a list of a thousand people be displayed in less than a second. I've just created the most targeted list of potential prospects in a split second um, that I get their emails, I get their phone numbers, I get a bunch of personal information of where they went to school and who my connections to them might be or my CEO's connection to them might be. So I can then personalize the voice message I'm going to leave or I can personalize the email I'm going to send. And oh, by the way, I can talk about how we solved a bunch of pain points for a like company in the Pacific Northwest that was in healthcare um, to drive their interest. I mean, it is literally revolutionary, um, the information we have available us to target and get the names and numbers of people that we want to do outreach to. And that's the whole concept behind account-based sales development and how, and again, it's, it's technology, process, and procedure that I put into the hands of SDRs and these SDRs, they may not have worked, but guess what? You've all been multitasking and um, going into, you have your laptops, you have your phones, your I mean, you've never been better suited to, to do this um, kind of multitasking, putting something together and then offering up a, um, a process that can bring opportunities and sales and pipeline. Are, are you going to codify that in a book? Or have you thought about like how – I know you, you go out and you talk to companies about it and you consult with them, but do you have materials that you feel like could be, could be published as a book? And yeah, so when, when we kind of all – and 
my SDRs and my SDR managers, we were all kind of sitting in a room, and we had just read an article um, by a founder of uh, Bob Marketo, um, and he came out with a very well-known article called Fishing with Spears, and it was the introduction of modern-day account-based marketing, which is uh, instead of marketing, doing trade shows and events where they're kind of casting a wide net, let's target our marketing messaging towards specific people at specific companies. And we sat there and we read this article and we're like, he's got marketing um, in the title of this article. We're doing the same thing, but we're all sales development people. So that's when we just kind of all set it together. Mm -hmm. And I wrote uh, a blog post entitled Account-Based Sales Development, a New Methodology in Outbound Prospecting. And I wrote it and I posted it. And I've never written a thing in my life. I did write some things here at UCSB, but since then, nothing. And I wrote this piece, and it went viral. Mm. And, um, and now kind of this, uh, this methodology, this best practice, bears Cloudera's name. Yep. Um, and so I have written about it. Um, and now I go and I speak all, all over the place about this. And one of the things that you end up doing when you're attached to startups, it's really hard. It's really hard to grow any company. Amen. Um, and you remember back in the first bubble where everyone w- was walking around with NDAs, mm-hmm. signed this because mm-hmm. there's no NDAs anymore. Everyone just gives their best practices away because it's, it's, it's just too hard to do it by yourself. And so now the number of user groups and, uh, and, and, the, and the meetups that are going on where people are just giving away their best practices, um, and that's what you do. And again, giving away of something doesn't mean that they're going to know how to do it. They often have questions. And so I left Cloudera two weeks ago after four and a half years to go back to an advisory firm called Salesforce. And a lot of the advisory firm is giving it away, but then being them for them, being there for them to ask questions mm-hmm. um, about, well, God, what, what's the best kind of SDR we should hire? How do we compensate them? Uh, what technologies do we pull together? So that's what the advisory firm is, is, is built on, is uh, mentorship mm-hmm. and advisory to people that haven't done it and made as many mistakes as I have. <laughs> when, it, when, when people struggle with it in the implementation, is it, what are the reasons why, why it might not work for some companies? Is it just lack of discipline and, and getting their arms around the data? or? Well, um, so account-based sales development as a methodology works um, if the messaging you are bringing to a certain company has more than one person. Because these, these campaigns take care in feeding. You've got you to gotta personalize the messaging. At Cloudera, at any given company, I can send that three-email drip nurture sequence to anywhere from 20 people to 100 people at the same company. If there's only one buyer for my technology, that's a lot of work right, for. Right, right. Um, and so I don't know that it works for uh, the company that is selling their technology. And there's only one relevant persona, or there's only one relevant person. Um, you know, when you're making a purchase for big data, there's a lot of people involved in yep. the sales process. Right. Um, you know, they take nine to twelve months on average, and you're touching. You know, anywhere from 15 to 25 people, and there's five to seven relevant stakeholders that have to come together and decide. That's a very complicated. You don't learn how to consensus sell and sell enterprise class software deals that go up and down and sideways in your negotiations overnight. 
So, so it's I, not going to excuse me. It's not going to be a good fit for an S and B sale, shorter sales cycle. Correct. A point solution. Yeah, it's in more of an enterprise. Like you said, one yep. person in the organization can say yes or no. Yep. So the price point's got to be up there. It's got to be a pretty complex sale, multiple stakeholders, and a longer sales cycle. Yeah, I think the companies that uh, um, are selling, you know, there's a lot of these freemium models. You know, try before you buy, and you know they can put a credit card down and be charged, you know, a hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month. Yep. Um, there's a lot of companies that are creating this long tail of, um, and then once they get attached to, um, then they start adding more premium features, and then you charge more for those. Right. There's a lot of business yeah, we models. Did, well, we did that at Citrix, right? So we were able to get the white-collar professional to buy it and the big organization to buy it both. Um, that's nice when that flywheel gets going. But. Yeah, there's a great book called The, the, the Long Tail uh, by Chris Anderson, who is the editor of Wired magazine. Um, that is uh, really relevant uh, if, for those of you that are interested in um, uh, business models in venture-backed companies. A lot of companies use this freemium uh, right. model. Right. Um, a lot of them use it improperly and poorly. Yes. Um, but when it's done right, like Box or Dropbox or something, yep. that it, it's, it's a beauty to see. We'll take the next student's question. Thank you for being here today. Um, how was your experience at Cloudera pre-IPO versus post-IPO? Was the goal all along to go public, and how did going public change the business at- atmosphere at Cloudera? Great question, Nike Gaucho guy over there. Um, so I've had four of these journeys, which is just stupid. Um, um, it really is. It's just uh, I've been hit with a lucky stick. Um, I don't know that much about technology, but I've been able to figure out how to follow the right people that do. And in every single journey, the most exciting year by far is the year preceding the IPO. Um, The second most exciting year by far is the year um, following the IPO. Now, the road to IPO, on average, takes 10 years, um, 9 to 10 years. Um, So it's a long haul. Um, I will not join a pre-seed company ever. It's too hard. Um, and I've kind of, I'm wearing in gray hair and, you know, stress and, you know, um, other pains um, uh, from doing four of those heavy lifts. And most of those companies I joined, you know, employ, employee, you know, 50, 60, or 70, and I was there for five years. Um, that's the exciting part for me. Um, um, and again, the year just before an IPO, um, it's energizing because everyone really does have to come together, and that's where communication and alignment become really important. Um, and uh, it's just to see 500, 1,000 people all realize, wow, there's, there's a, a dream that's uh, reachable. we got to do this. Everyone comes together in this really beautiful way. And guess what happens? Everyone knows because everyone's writing about your company. They've just hit 70 million or 100 million Everyone want, everyone's attracted to that company. So now all of a sudden in your recruiting efforts, you're getting better executives, better individual contributors, because everyone wants to come work for you. Um, and so recruiting is easier. Um, selling is easier. Um, it, just, it just, everyone's talking about you. Yep. And then if you're lucky enough to actually do it, now the real work becomes, because most of those companies that go public, they're not profitable. They're bleeding money everywhere. And now they have to have the roadmap to profitability. Because at some point in the one, two, or three years following, you have to 
show profitability. Otherwise, in the public markets, every quarter when you represent your earnings and you're not showing quarter-over-quarter growth, you have to guide maybe to softer growth. And if any of you um, care to look at uh, the ticker symbol CDLR, which is Cloudera, uh, three weeks ago, um, we had our CEO had to guide to had to guide down and to softer earnings for the rest of 2018. Our stock went from $22 to 13. It's a 45% hit overnight. It's like a $1.5 billion valuation clip. Brutal. And we killed our Q4 number, and we announced an unbelievable quarter-over-quarter growth, but because there was some relative softness going forward, which happens because it's hard to keep accelerating. And as a public company, you're going to accelerate, but at a slower... And we just decided, you know, we just, we knew in the numbers that we were, you know, decelerating at a faster rate than the street and the markets wanted us to. And so now we're fighting back. Um, Anyway, there's a whole other... uh, I'll stop there. Well, I mean, that goes to the how's the company changed. So now all of a sudden you're accountable on this quarterly by quarterly basis, whereas when you're private, those you don't you don't have to spend any kind of mental energy on that kind of nonsense, right? You, you report to your board and then you start the next quarter. You don't have all of this. Well, and, and now everything's audit. There's audit committees, and yeah. all, now the decisions I make as a leader, um, I can make changes to my compensation plan for my SDRs on my own. But as a public company now, right. I have an audit committee. I have a compensation committee, and now yeah. if I want to make a change. It, I can't do it overnight. I have to, now it might take a month or two, and I just don't. Me personally, man, I like to walk down the office and yep. walk into the people that are running it and say, "Hey, I've got an idea." And you know, you start to noodle and bake new cool together, um, and you can do that as a right. public company. Um, there's process, there's procedure, there's audit. Yeah, it just in the culture, and again. It takes about a year for a lot of that to sink in. And so I waited about a year, and uh, I left my notice. And again, I knew all along that um, what I wanted to do at Cloudera was build it, build a team and help take the company public. And I did that, mm-hmm. and I stayed a year extra because it's exciting. And then I had put in a management team that could um, – and again, I learned this from my mentor, Tom Riley, the CEO of Cloudera. Um, every – you know, great leaders replace themselves with management teams that can carry forward without them. Um, uh, if my team were to fall apart after I left, I haven't done my job. Yep. Um, and I felt comfortable leaving my notice because all five of my direct reports and leaders of my five SDR teams globally had been onboarded, developed, trained, and were confident and had the self-esteem to to, to, to carry on, and so I felt really, really good. And right. now there, there is no, there is no replacement for me. They're, they're off to the races. Yep, that's wonderful. So we're we're running short of time, but I do want you to to touch upon balance. So you've had you know, very very successful professional career for IPOs as we as we've mentioned, but now looking back on your on your life, and a lot of people in this room and on the internet are watching this, or they're looking forward at their lives. What what words of wisdom do you have for them? Yeah, so, um, again, I'm 52. Um, I graduated in 88, so I'm 30 years post my undergraduate years at UCSB. And, and again, I've had an unbelievable career. 
I fell in love. I got married. I had two kids. I raised them. Um, and now I'm kind of exiting the dog-eat-dog world of companies, and now I'm going into consulting, and I guess I've kind of full circle. Um, but I'm not married any longer. I'm a single father. Um, I'm very happy and healthy in my life, but I went through um, quite a bit of pain. And a lot of that pain came from um, the attention that I had on the teams and the companies that I was working for. And I didn't have the awareness while I was going through, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the tornado that is all these startups. Um, and again, I was traveling every quarter to London, every quarter to uh, Singapore uh, to, you know, go in, uh, on quarterly business reviews. And, yep. um, it I sounds just, glamorous. And so yeah, I just, I just um, and again, you know, um, there's a life at home that, um, of course, I had one, and I coached Little League and did all those things, but I was not as present as I should have been in the most important relationship and part of my life that I should have had. Um, and so um, it's a reminder for all of you, because you all have relationships, whether it's with a best friend or a parent or uh, a partner. Um, it, it takes care and feeding as well, um, and it's easy uh, when you're in the startup world, because it's exciting. And there are, it's, I mean, it, I mean, I've had more fun and gone to more places and, and just really thrived in my business life. But um, if you ask me if there's one thing I would have done over, it would, it would have been to have more awareness around my relationships within my family unit. Um, and that is kids and mom and brother in fact, my brother is the white-haired dude sitting right here <laughs> um, who drove up, from, uh, drew, drove up from L.A. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I will, I will leave you with that. Um, uh, it's, it's really important because um, after a long day, a long week, a uh, failure that you've had, uh, share uh, what you're going through at home. Don't be that person that doesn't think the person at home doesn't care. If they love you, they do. And they may not understand completely, but you need to at least have that vulnerability and that openness to share that with them because they do care and they want to know. Um, so, um, again, I don't, I don't know what I would have thought um, if I'm sitting in your shoes, but if you remember that um, as you fall in love and decide to get married or whatever it is you decide to do, uh, don't push them away. Um, keep them close. I appreciate you opening up about that. Thanks so much, Lars. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.